Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, we're heading east of the mountains again to Ellensburg and Spokane for a new episode in the Rebuilding Democracy series, hosted this time by Northwest Public Broadcasting's Connor Henriksen. The series is a collaboration between Humanities Washington, KUOW, Spokane Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting. This is Rebuilding Democracy. I'm Connor Henriksen. Political, social, and cultural divides are easy to see in America, and they constantly play out here in the Northwest. Dr. Jennifer Sherman is an associate professor of sociology at Washington State University, She studied one small community east of the Cascades to get a better sense of what forces are straining our society. She talked with NWPB's Sue Ann Ramella about the roots of our divides and ways to remedy them. Many people feel as if there is this east-west divide or what they call the Cascade Curtain effect in our state. Um, Do you think that's true? At least a perceived division on both sides, I think. Um, I certainly experience the east side version of it more because I live out here um, and and I've lived, uh, you know, way over uh, on the Pullman side, but I've also lived in Tri-Cities because I was first at that campus. And, um, and, you know, so both in kind of central and far east Washington, it does feel like people regularly feel like politically they're not represented in this state, um, like culturally they are not represented by the larger state and, yeah, that there's a real division in, in kind of what we care about, how we care about it, and, and how we deal with it. And Professor, is it fair to say that it very much goes along the lines of conservative and liberal mindset, or is it more complicated? I would argue that it's more complicated than just politics. I think, you know, politics and culture are, are certainly part of it, but In my work, I also look at social class as a big part of that divide. So, you know, we just have a a real concentration of wealth on the west side of the state and much less concentration of that um, east of the Cascades, I would say. Okay, that's interesting. And you have a book coming out about the class divide, but you call it class blindness. Can you describe that for us? Class blindness for me is really, uh, I define it as sort of the the tendency for people with social class privilege to just be unaware or, you know, blind basically to their advantages. Um, So we just often don't see the different ways in which we are advantaged, um, but also um, tend not to notice or be aware of the impacts that we can have on the less advantaged populations around us. Um, So it's really about a failure to acknowledge those class differences um, and the kind of unequal access to power and to opportunities that class differences create. Um, And I argue that 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 sort of failure to understand that you have all sorts of uh, unacknowledged advantages can really decrease your ability to understand and empathize with somebody who lacks the same types of advantages. So we, we have a tendency to just imagine everybody's kind of starting on the same playing field. And if you fail to get where I am, it's because you didn't work as hard or you didn't try as hard, rather than that you faced a, a, a systematic number of disadvantages that I did not. So what I'm hearing from you is that this class blindness then makes it sound as if we assume everyone has the same access. But what you're saying is that's not true. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, starting with just something like housing, if you got uh, into the housing market two generations ago, right, that's that is wealth that can be passed along to your children. And if you didn't, you're missing out on that. right? So um, because my my book, my work is, is focused in on one little rural community in eastern Washington or on the east side of the Cascades, um, where we have a lot of people with a lot of wealth from the west side, uh, particularly Seattle and Portland areas, either moving in permanently or buying second homes for recreation that they can use, you know, summers, weekends, whenever. Um, but because we have such a disparity in housing values between urban and rural, between west and east side, um, what happens is it's very quickly driving up prices in this community and people that are from there um, where you know housing historically hadn't been worth anything near that amount um, are getting priced out of their own homes. Either they can't afford the new tax burdens or 
younger adults just can't afford to buy into their own community, right? So they grow up there thinking someday I'll own a house like my dad did. But in fact, by the time they get to adulthood, the jobs don't pay well enough for them to afford housing. And I mean, a lot of them can't even afford to rent in their own community at this point. Is such a basic need for the American dream, right? Owning your own home. And I heard you say something there about taxes then start to go up. And when I think about the East-West divide, it's that Easterners feel that they're taxed and paying for things on the West side. But with this particular story, they're seeing taxes rise, and yet they feel they're missing out on their local community being able to afford to, to live there anymore. So then I almost don't blame people who are more conservative from being upset as they see who they perceive as more liberal, wealthy people moving in and, I guess, ruining things for them. I didn't see the the types of anger, at least back when I was doing this research in 2014 and 2015. I didn't see the levels of anger that we're seeing now, so I can't really speak to that. People were understanding that development has to happen, that you're going to need some sort of economic base. So I, I don't want to you know, paint those locals as overly resentful or frustrated. I think they were all really quite zen about it. But nonetheless, they did incur real struggles that I, I think do um, really underlie the ways in which we think about each other. So yeah, you end up with this this sort of divide between two populations, one of whom is really making it work, that you know housing is super affordable for them because they sold that house in Seattle and now they could buy 40 acres and, and put a gorgeous home on it and still have a lot left over. They're not, you know, they're not paying for that maybe. Um, and so they can make it work on a low wage job if that's all they can find in a community like this. And then they look at this local population that's struggling and there's a, a real level of judgment and assumption being made, you know, oh, if they can't make it work, it's probably because there's some individual level dysfunction um, rather than seeing, no, those people are facing all sorts of challenges that you're not and, and they're just struggling to make it work. You know, you have this very small community where you have kind of two different worlds that aren't interacting very much at all and making sort of snap judgments about each other. Um, so, I, yeah, I have a few thoughts about kind of, you know, what do you need to do about that? Um, how, how do you address those kinds of divides as they start to grow and fester? What are your ideas? I mean, I, I read a bit, a bit from your excerpt that it is there is no magic wand and it looks like it's a multi-level and takes some effort. So let's start where you think is the most immediate need to address. It's so hard to say, what's the most immediate need? Honestly, I think the most immediate need is, is the large scale policy changes. You know, I think a lot of what's happening in the U.S. right now is an artifact of the policies we've pursued that have allowed this kind of divide to occur, that have made it so difficult for people who are maybe, you know, not at the very top ends of the labor market to survive at all. So, you know, this is a story a little bit about the impacts of deindustrialization, um, of deunionization, right? So part of what's happened in communities like the one I'm talking about is just that we we lost working class jobs that paid a living wage. Um, we, you know, we had families that could make ends meet with a single earner 50 years ago that now can't. But Professor Sherman, those things sound like socialist programs, and that very much upsets people. So what would you say to that? Um, I, I think that that's right. That does really upset people. So I, I would have to say, you know, either we need to address those those issues and find ways to support people, you know, and if you want to call that socialism, do it. <laughs> I'm going to advocate for it anyways. Um, or um, I suppose the other option would be to think about the labor market and the economy and how do we support workers. So if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want to create programs that actually support childcare or support healthcare, okay, then let's pay people well enough that they can afford housing and they can afford to buy those things on the open market. If that's if that's the way we want to go is the, the neoliberal approach, we've got to do something on one end or the other, basically, because you cannot, I mean, I think this goes way back to like Henry Ford understood that you can't pay your workers not enough to live and expect the economy to keep moving, right? You're going to the workers have to be able to reproduce their own lives. And that goes back to what you're saying about class blindness, which I have to say, Professor, is a little uncomfortable as an American for me to even consider that there are class. Why do you think that is? 
It's so interesting. I, I mean, I agree. It's it's a almost a bad word to talk about social class in America. We've all sort of been trained to not recognize it. You know, there's lots of sociological research that shows that, you know, 90% of Americans imagine themselves to be middle class. If you pull us, we all think we're middle class, whether we're extremely wealthy or really, really struggling to get by. People tend to self-identify as middle class because nobody wants to admit to being like rich and nobody really wants to think of themselves as poor. Um, right, we all think we're we're sort of in the middle, um, and we are a nation that really was founded on this idea of we're going to be a classless society. We're going to be a place where everybody can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and that mythology underlies so much of our understanding of the world, including exactly what I'm talking about here. Right, that we have all these advantages, and we look at people without recognizing that they don't, and just say, well, they're clearly not pulling themselves up. It must be their individual fault, because we all have those advantages. But in fact, we don't. To recap, there is a difference between west side, east side, or rural and urban, and you propose that it is class-based, and that can lead to the discrepancies or the challenges in politics and policy. And also, when we look and examine ourselves, we don't want to admit that we may be at the bottom end of a wealth spectrum, and so we we may not want social programs that could benefit us, that benefited those who are at the wealthier end of the spectrum. We mostly focused on individuals and communities I think in this show, Rebuilding Democracy, there's going to be a lot of focus on legislative and policy, but I feel as if the majority of the work has to be done within ourselves to get to know our neighbors and to strengthen our communities by reaching out with one another. Is that what I'm hearing you saying? I think that's a big piece of the puzzle that's maybe under-recognized. Does that make sense? Like, I think this is one of the places where our political fissures have grown and, and really festered is that we just cannot understand each other at this point. You know, I, I mean, we more and more are hearing people say, like, I just, you know, I don't even want like Republicans or Democrats, whichever side you're on in my Facebook feed. Like, I'm going to just get, you know, we just we don't want to hear each other's perspectives at all. We we have gotten so far from understanding each other's humanity and perspective that I think that underlies these policy differences in a way that shouldn't be ignored. Um, so I, I don't think it's the, the only difference or even the most important difference, but I think it's one of the least recognized problems. People on the left often think, oh, well, you know, people who are struggling just need help. Um, and they they want to frame it in a way that those people don't necessarily want. They They don't want help, right? Help has been so stigmatized for so long in this country um, that we're really, we're sometimes thinking about it wrong. Like, in fact, what a lot of people want is the opportunity to make it through work if they're able. Um, and that's, you know, often what underlies a lot of the, the differences between the parties. Whatever we come up with has to be universal, and it has to really... I think, build on the myth of the American dream, right? Making that more accessible rather than simply giving a handout to people who haven't been able to access it and saying, here's a little help. Thank you, Professor, so much for your time. That was Dr. Jennifer Sherman, Associate Professor of Sociology at Washington State University and author of Dividing Paradise, Rural Inequality and the Diminishing American Dream. She was speaking with NWPB's Sue Ann Ramella. These rural-urban divides are something that Spokesman Review columnist Sue Lonnie Madsen deals with every day. She says personal jabs and a fundamental lack of understanding each other is at the heart of our troubled climate. She talked about that with NWPB's Scott Leadingham. You are someone who writes from a, a conservative perspective, and there are other columnists who write from the opposite perspective. Uh, Sean Vestal, I, I might note for those who are familiar with the Spokesman Review. And I think it's fair to say that that sometimes you two take not just divergent opinions, but sort of uh, do a little bit of a tit for tat, <laughs> if you will. And so we are in this time of talking about our differences writ large in society and in Washington state, but you have definitely have differences within 
the newsroom there, or just your colleagues at the Spokesman Review. How do you sort of talk to your fellow journalists and writers uh, in this in a way that we are supposed to be talking with each other as Americans? As far as how I would speak to or how I speak to people, I try really hard. I'm sure there's some examples of me getting a little snarky, but I try really hard to focus on on policy and not people. And that's probably the key to being able to have difficult conversations is not to not to personalize, is not to treat each other with contempt. We can disagree and we can disagree very firmly on, on what's the right policy way to get to a certain end goal. But if we can stick to figuring out if there's some place in that end goal that we agree and, and to disagree without making it, well, calling somebody an idiot or you know whatever, then I think we can actually have conversations. So in terms of conversations, you're right. We are in a time in which I think more conversations and less shouting would probably be for everyone's benefit. How do we have conversations when we sometimes can't even agree on basic facts and premises, right? It's not that we are debating whether to, you know, go to the moon and whether that is scientifically feasible. It's we're debating whether there actually is a moon or not debating it. Some people say there is not a moon and other people say, how could you be so silly and ridiculous to think that there's not a moon, just for uh, an out there example. Well, play, playing off your example, I think it's actually more difficult than that. It's that more and more I have seen us drifting apart in what language means. And it would require us to first agree on what the word moon means. Well, what do you mean by that? Is it, uh, is it the, the chunk of cheese or is it the rock or is it, or it's, it's uh, we're getting way off on that analogy. But when we talk about election security, uh, which has certainly been a whole lot in the news lately, and conservatives say they're concerned about voter fraud. Well, we should all be concerned about voter fraud, but that tends to get picked up and called, well, if you're only saying that because you wanna suppress votes, and now we're not having a conversation anymore because we're accusing, uh, you know, conservatives are feeling are being accused of improper motives and voter suppression is too often described as, as if everybody should be able to vote and there should be no requirements. I don't think that's what progressives mean, but that's how it's heard that, well, if you're, if you're going to say all of these actions are voter suppression, uh, then don't you care about the integrity of the ballot? Well, presumably we could all care about free and fair elections and making sure that we have ballot integrity. But when we get off into tangents, arguing about the meanings of those words and, and assuming ill intent behind them, we can't have that conversation. No, we, we certainly cannot. What I am interested in is your response to the January 6th attack, because in just sort of reading some of your columns over the past several years, and then on January 6th, you, you wrote this column that was published that day. You, you said you were typing these words as you were watching this on TV. I thought that was very striking. And, and here's the end of that, if I may read that, the end few sentences of that column. To Trump supporters, accept the electoral college results and to everyone, end the madness of brother against brother. Choose to be Alexander Hamilton with the courage to pull your shot, confident in your ability to debate another day, or you will be Aaron Burr, who sings with regret at the end of the Broadway musical Hamilton, I was too young and blind to see. I should have known the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. I, I really appreciated that sentiment. It, it really struck me. So thank you for, for including that in your column on that day. Did that day change anything for you and your outlook for how we converse with each other, not just nationally, but here, in a fairly divided Washington state. I recommitted to making sure that I read back through to see that I'm, I'm trying to focus on uh, policy actions rather than personalities. And, and trying to run the test is, would I say this if I was talking to somebody face-to-face -face, um, when I'm writing for a column where I'm writing on social media? 
That's a hard test. And I, it, I've pulled myself up a couple of times, pulled myself up short to say, I, no, I need to back off from this. And that kind of, of self-control, I think, is a piece of what we are, we are missing to know when and how to press a point and always to do it with respect for the other person. Now, I've, I have some, a uh, couple of regular critics that like to uh, dump a lot of stuff on, uh, on my plate, either on social media or on, on emails, following columns. And I just, I always thank them for being a reader. And it's amazing what that does as well in diffusing the situation, even in my own, even on my own side to make sure that I do appreciate that somebody is calling or is talking to me, even if they're not practicing that same uh, commitment to avoiding uh, attitude of contempt, it does help. We, you know, none of us controls other people's actions, but we are responsible for our reactions and we can choose how we react. And so I, I think I have uh, since the, since the January 6th, I have recommitted to stopping another moment to think, how am I reacting and why am I reacting this way? That would go a long way towards towards helping us to have uh, conversations again. You had a column, a little bit of a call and response, if you will, uh, with a Seattle Times columnist and employee, uh, Naomi Ishisaka. And I think the broad point overall was Seattle thinks this way, Eastern Washington, and particularly where you live, Lincoln County, thinks this way and kind of votes this way. And we're sort of speaking past each other about our experiences. And I think you sort of came down on, come on out here, experience Eastern Washington, got the coffee pot on for you. Is that, is that an honest offer? Like anyone who wants to kind of come, you know, see how we live out here, come over and visit you? Absolutely. How else are you going to get to know people if you don't get acquainted? I've made a couple of good friends from folks who wrote with a question from a different perspective to a column. And I offered to meet for coffee. That was a lot easier to do when you could meet for coffee and had some good conversations from that. But it takes being willing to listen. And uh, so I really appreciate the people that maybe don't agree with me on a whole lot of things, but we do find some things that we can agree on. Those are really valuable connections to make. I have reached out to Naomi Ishisaki to see if she will would come. I've given her a date in, in the spring when we usually have a an open house at the ranch, and we'll see if something comes of that. I'd, I'd love to have her over, but I do think that um, some of that some of that difference. You know, I wrote that tongue in cheek because when I read her re- reading her column, made me roll my eyes. So I thought, well, I'll just have a little fun with that. I should note that we did reach out to Naomi to to also talk to her with her as of as of this time recording right now we've we've not been able to schedule anything, but I, I wonder if that works both ways. Are you willing to go and experience quote unquote Seattle, whatever that means, uh, from their perspective and understand their perspective as well? Well, here's an observation I've I've had for a long time. I I think it is easier to understand the urban perspective from the rural area than vice versa, because uh, many, not all, but many rural residents have a family that, I mean, that live in urban areas, right? So you you are going and visiting and you are there and you get to hear what things look like from their point of view. And and you sort of have an insight into that perspective. There's far fewer that go the other direction. Let's say you are uh, being visited by your friends in Seattle, the the Seattle Times columnist, and the first thing you want to show or do with them to sort of highlight what Eastern Washington is all about. What do you do with them? Where do you take them? I think we'd walk down the quarter mile of driveway to the mailbox and just experience the sense of distance. And recognizing that, and I'd like to emphasize that solutions that are created when everyone around the table is used to density work less and less well, the less and less dense areas become. And and that's part of what creates a lot of the tension is rules that may work for a majority of, of, of the people in the state who live in certain kinds of conditions, but that doesn't reflect the whole state. Spokesman Review Columnist. 
architect, and Lincoln County, Washington rancher Sue Lonnie Madsen in conversation with NWPB's Scott Leadingham. Our political climate is dominated by two increasingly polarized parties. Ginny Darrell runs People for Effective Government, a Spokane-based nonpartisan coalition that's committed to changing that climate. She talked about that mission with Scott Leadingham. Thanks for joining us, Ginny. Thanks for having me. So tell us, from your perspective, what are you trying to do with your group? How does it work? Well, our mission is to support bipartisan approaches to governing, which are also fiscally responsible and ensure an adequate social safety net and promote a civil society. Okay, promote a civil society. From the layperson's perspective, what exactly is civil society? It's something that we don't seem to have right now. And the members of PEG have been working to try to change the current political climate in which our two major parties have become increasingly polarized. So we're putting on free public forums mostly every month. And through these forums, we're trying to encourage sincere and civil debate about big challenges that our nation faces and how we might go about working towards effective solutions. Is this something that's only become more necessary in the last several years, just since 2016 or 2008 or something? Or has it always been there, but it's just now become easier to organize? I think the issues, the the divisiveness and current environment is much more apparently divisive. But I believe that a lot of the issues that we're facing have been around for a very long time. This group, PEG, is only about not quite four years old, I think. And we only recently became incorporated as a nonprofit, but we've been working, uh, putting on forums for almost three years now. I wonder if one of the difficulties, Ginny, is coming up with a consensus on what effective government is. It seems hard. Like to some people, the only good government is the absolute minimum. And the and to others, they think we need more of it. And it should be more involved in helping promote a strong social welfare state and social safety net. So how do you operate within that dichotomy when people can't even come to a consensus on what effective government means? I wish I knew the answer to that. If we could answer that question, I think we'd make a lot of headway towards being able to solve problems quicker, or at least make efforts towards those solutions. So that is the challenge that we're working in the midst of, all of us, not just PEG, trying to find common ground enough just to discuss some of these issues. So the way we're trying to handle that is by having open public forums. Anybody is welcome to attend. For the first few years, first couple of years, we were doing in-person forums, of course, until the pandemic hit. And now we're doing them on Zoom. So we're trying to bring issues that anybody would have an interest in and then have people who are knowledgeable bring their perspective as speakers and the audience can ask and interact with them in whatever way is possible on Zoom, you can ask questions, but in person forums, they were able to stand up and explain what their concerns were and then have a discussion with the audience. I think it's fair to say that we're in a time of divergent ideas over the necessary and proper role of government, and also in just the trust of elected leaders and frankly, of media outlets. And I wonder if a lot of your work is both helping people not only trust institutions, but trust each other. I would say that's true. Uh, Certainly, we are in a period of very divergent opinions, and they're sometimes quite extreme. So our intent, and, and I think the side effect of what we're doing, is to bring people to a place where they can hear different perspectives, and then interact with the speakers, whether it's on Zoom by asking questions and having them answered, or if in in-person forums, the audience is able to stand up and explain uh, what their concerns are and what their questions are, and then interact with the audience as well as the speaker. So, it, it, I mean, this is not a new thing. The way we're doing it is new, but societies have been carrying on conversations or forums or coffee clutches or or whatever you call them for 
eons. And that's how you can come up with new ideas or come up with new approaches. Are you all worried that the, the ways in which you are promoting these sorts of civil dialogue programs are being outpaced or outdone by the declines in our civic institutions and our trust in civic institutions? Well, that could be true, but we can't stop. We've got to try. Right. And what are some of the ways you, you talked about some of the ways that you do the programs, but are there particular things that you've tried over the last several years that you think have worked particularly well? And maybe things that you've tried out, you thought, well, actually, the way we did it this way in this program isn't working. We need to adjust. What are some of those pros and cons of the methods? That's kind of hard to answer. Um, I think because we're new at this, relatively new, and the way that we functioned before the pandemic was to do monthly in-person forums. That was, the, that was our modus of operation. But we were forced into, just like everybody, we were forced into going online. And then we have learned how to do that a little better. Um, but I will say that I feel we have been very fortunate in contacting and, and getting speakers willing to talk to our group. And because of the online ability, we're able to get speakers from just about anywhere. Um, and these are all speakers who are volunteering their time and their information. It's, it's just awesome. All right, let's look ahead to the next four years. We've, we've come out of a time of, of some polarization. We're obviously into a time of really intense feelings about election results and how government works. Are you at all optimistic or just sort of holding in a holding pattern over what the next four years is going to look like? The you know, current president, Biden, has said that his goal is more unity. Does that bring you any hope in how you do your work? Well, I always have hope. I think we place our hope in society, in people, in individuals. And so that's why we're open to the public. I'm I don't appeal to politicians to attend. They're welcome to attend, but we want people talking to each other. Isn't that very similar to the idea of church and finding or religious institutions where you find uh, commonality in your shared belief and through that commonality, you, you find some form of community? Are you trying to foster a sense of community, not just sort of an agreement on bipartisan political solutions? Um, I don't think I would go in that direction for a description of what we're trying to do. Because I don't want to have just like-minded people. I want people with different perspectives. I want them to be able to listen and discuss across their beliefs. Um, and I guess I would say that the board of directors is trying to select topics and speakers that cover a wide range of things so that we don't just try to build a, a community like a church. You know, not, I don't want everybody to be of the same pro political persuasion or the same perspective. I, I wonder if we have almost lost too much in our civil and social dialogue to be able to come back to a place that we used to be. From your perspective, are you trying to get back to a place where we quote unquote used to be it, wherever that was in, in the past? Or are you trying to get us to a place where we need to go and haven't yet been? More towards the latter of what you propose, because, and this is my personal perspective, is that we have huge huge issues as a society to deal with, not just in this country. And we're not going to be able to make headway unless we can talk to each other. So in that sense, we're headed towards something that society has not had to deal with yet, or at least not that we know of. Are you at all concerned about the climate, not just nationally, but let's be honest, in in the Inland Northwest, as you are well aware, we are in a moment where over the last several years, there's been more traction or more calls for splitting Washington, at least, and other areas of the Northwest uh, along ideological lines that 
are also conforming a certain amount of geography. And it seems to me that that conversation has been around for a long time, as long as I've been alive. I've been hearing some version of that, but it's become more apparent that there's more people interested in that, or at least their voices are louder. So how do you operate within that construct when some people are saying, we need to actually split apart and your mission is to bring more people together? Well, I view it that the cause of this divisiveness is the inability or the uninterest in listening to someone with a different perspective. And so that's a tough question to answer. If we can't understand a different person's perspective, we can't at least listen to it and try to understand it, we're not going to get anywhere but dividing. So if we want to preserve what we have, and by that I mean the the government and the society that we have, if we want to preserve what we have had, perhaps is a better way to say it, then we have to talk to each other. If we don't, we're going to lose, come together or fall apart. Right. United, we stand divided. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) On that note, I think many people who remember the time that we came through after September 11th, that phrase, united we stand, divided we fall, was everywhere. There was just a few years on where we became very divided over our perceived response to that, the war on terrorism, our intervention in places overseas. So that obviously wasn't a lasting uh, sense of unity because the policy responses didn't align with what a lot of people thought we should be doing or people thought we should be doing that and, and there was disagreement. I wonder if someone like you who's working in this space of bringing people together and talking uh, about you know civil society and unity, are you at all distressed by the fact that something that we should be coming together on, overcoming our differences, uh, attacks on our democracy, a pandemic that is affecting us in so many ways, we can't even say united we stand, divided we fall, because obviously that's not happening this time around. Yet. And so I'm energized in doing this work because of that. Every citizen has a duty to engage, and and I feel some sense of contributing by doing this work. Chipping away at a vast iceberg, but every little bit helps. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. That was Ginny Darrell, who runs People for Effective Government in Spokane, speaking with Scott Leadingham. The polarized political climate makes it hard to reach across the aisle and get anything done. But one person who's moved his community forward despite the odds is Ellensburg Mayor Bruce Tabb. He talked with Sue Ann Ramella about how he finds common ground and creates an inclusive community. Mayor Tabb, so for many who travel you know, across the state, Ellensburg is like the middle point. You travel over the Cascades, you exhale when you reach Ellensburg, you get some gas and a snack, and then you head out across farm country. Or, you know, you go through all miles of flat, straight road and reach Ellensburg to rejuvenate before tackling the pass. So it has this lovely downtown, and it's got Central Washington University. It's a symbol of being in the middle of the state. How has Ellensburg been able to find the middle ground to solve problems? Well, I think there are parallels in what you just described as far as being in the center of the state. You know, the the community as a whole, I think, tends to be more progressive. Uh, Kittitas County is a fairly conservative county, and I think the community itself is fairly blue. And what that means then is that we need to figure out ways to come to the center. Coming to the center means really that unless you can find commonality, unless you can develop common self-interest and align that self-interest, functionally and fundamentally, you're not going to get a lot accomplished for either the community or the county. And and so I think if I were to characterize how we have approached sort of the political arena or just simply approached governance in the community and communication in the community, it's the piece that, that, that we do not need to make political statements. We don't necessarily need to posit rhetoric. We simply need to be able to understand what the common goals are and the common needs are and work together to get that to happen. So what are some projects or policies that you and city leaders were able to work on with that common ground and common goal? Yeah, throughout the state, affordable housing is a significant issue. 
the city of Ellensburg, through, with the support of its voters, passed a sales tax increase, which supports the creation of affordable housing and maintaining affordable housing in the community. At the same time, the county has an affordable housing and homeless fund, again, to address similar issues. We are currently working jointly on a project for basically an apartment complex. We were able to take a portion of the money that the city had, a portion of the money that the county had, both contributed to the pot. And because of that, we're able to get that project moving forward. And it's actually, I think, breaking ground within the next 30 days. That's a very, very concrete example of our ability to reach across ideology, potentially, or or party lines. And and again, I should note that city council and the mayor, uh, that position, we're nonpartisan. County commissioners is a partisan race, and all of our county commissioners are Republican. There was a recognition that people are simply being priced out of the market, and we were able to work jointly on getting a project moving forward that we would not have been able to do individually. Um, Similarly, since the start of the pandemic, we have, well, it's a community recovery group, that group has been meeting literally since two weeks after the initial declaration of emergency, actually almost a year ago now. That was put together by myself and uh, chair of the county commissioners, Brett Waxsmith. The group itself is kind of this weird mixture of social support agencies, chambers of commerce, downtown associations, business owners, other elected officials, for instance, from the city of Clay Ellum, city of Roslyn, city of Kittitas. And all of us have been meeting on a weekly basis simply to understand the effect of the pandemic, but also to be able to address it and invest resources as they become available in a way that meets the needs of everyone in the county, uh, not just a specific population. I've read a lot that on the local level, many city leader and you know county officials are able to work together to address issues. Why is it that we have this perception, though, that when you look at the bigger picture at the whole state, people can't seem to work together across the aisle? Fundamentally, we're, we're caught and lost in our own rhetoric. People, for the most part, are now relying on parallel streams of information, their beliefs and and their actions, therefore, are guided by information sources that really have no connection to each other. Certainly, we're seeing that at the uh, national level and to some extent at the state level. At a local level, it's simply not worth getting lost in that game. The beauty of local politics is if, if we screw up, somebody catches me in the store and said, you screwed up. You know, there's, a, there's an, an issue that, that the city is working on and, and the county is working on, or if the county and city become acrimonious in their interaction, both the, the county commissioners um, and, and city officials are going to be called to task on it. And so, I mean, I think for my approach has always been, I don't have to agree with you politically. I don't have to agree with you philosophically on a lot of issues. But what I do need to be able to do is agree on how to move the community forward and that requires us to have those, those types of conversations. Sometimes they're not easy. We're still in a process of conversation with our county commissioners because I think the city's approach to land use and growth management is different than the county's has historically been. I think we're at a cusp where we would actually agree that we will be able to have joint standards for what's called the urban growth area, where the city of Ellensburg will grow to the standards that, that the city has and will respect our planning. Um, that's historically not been in place. It's not a very public conversation, but it's a critical conversation to conclude because it really does dictate you know, where your store is going to go. How are your roads going to run? What are the standards those roads are built to? Uh, what are the houses going to look like? What kind of houses are going in? All of those things come from an ability to agree uh, and move forward. How do you, when you don't have the same philosophy, you both agree that there is a problem, how do you move forward together? We can call each other up. We can sit down. We can have a conversation. And the way that I've found works is to help determine where that self-interest might lie. What about when you have different cultural views, shifts in society of how we see one another? How do you find common ground there? For those types of things that when you look at the cultural kinds of uh, activities, you know, certainly over the summer and currently, I think what you really find occurring for the most part is that the city retains its independence and from our perspective, our integrity to move forward in directions which may not align necessarily with where the commissioners or the county is going. So a good example right now would be we're in the process, uh, myself and two other city council members, 
conducted a listening tour over the summer uh, with over 100 folks who represented marginalized communities within the city of Ellensburg, Latinx, uh, LGBTQ, religious minorities. And it was really a listening tour. We wanted to know what it was like, and we wanted to understand how we could do better to support a a more inclusive community. That initiative was not something that the county commissioners were willing to undertake, but it was certainly something that we felt was critical for the good of the city, both currently, but also moving into the future. Um, And we're currently moving forward to pass a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative or ordinance, which will create a commission to support the city to continue the efforts to be be more diverse, to create an equitable uh, environment, and be inclusive. Again, those are city initiatives that are separate from any initiative that the county would want to undertake or is undertaking now. Uh, the commissioners have not been a barrier in that because fundamentally it's a city decision. And the city, I think, and the city council is, is very comfortable moving forward to create that environment where we feel we can support people to be within this community and be celebrated. Mm. And just so I understand, it's not that the county commissioners disagree. It's just that it's not on their agenda. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it's a city initiative, so I, we've not reached out to the commissioners to find out where they might stand or not, but there are no public statements which would indicate that they're not in support of it. So this makes me think of, uh, you know, research that's been done on those who live within cities and those who live further out. And uh, unfortunately, it's just a black or white thing of you're Republican or Democrat, and Democrats tend to live within cities while more conservative folk live out. Is that the case with Ellensburg? Well, I think it's the case for Kittitas County. If you were to look at an election map, uh, just even from the past election, at a presidential level, I think you would find that Ellensburg, Clay Ellum, and Roslyn all went blue. If you were to look further out, it begins to shade lighter and lighter blue until eventually it becomes red. So I think that observation is accurate. When you move out of the city, you would find that it's much more conservative. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure that I would hazard a guess. <laughs> um, I mean, I think what's germane to, our, to this conversation is is not to understand why it's more conservative or not conservative. Um, the, the, the piece that's critical for us, I think, is to understand how we can work together to make the community work and and be a better place for everybody to live. And I think that's that's what we're striving to do. So, what would you say are some challenges to find those commonalities and goals? So many people now get their information, their external information um, from sources which really don't intersect. They're almost as if they're hermetically sealed, either facts or not facts. I mean, you can argue it either which way. What that drives people to do, I think, is, is to form their opinions of your actions predicated on their information stream. So the challenge that I really see before us is how do we work with folks across the political spectrum to celebrate what we're trying to accomplish within the community. You know, the interesting piece often is that there's no one, even as we've taken criticism, for instance, for our diversity initiative, but no one who has come forward and said, we want this to be a bad community. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one says, we want this community to exclude people. All of the people, even as they're leveling criticism at council, talk about wanting this to be a welcoming community, wanting this to be a supportive community, and <clears throat> their perception that it is, a, it is so already. So I think the challenge is to move people from it's all good right now to it can be better, and how do we achieve that? How can you achieve that? To some extent, I think from the council's perspective, it's simply moving forward with the initiatives that we've started. And I think what that means then is we need to think through how we're going to engage our community and the people within it in different conversations. And I don't have a magic wand. I mean, we were just on a conversation with some folks yesterday on how do we begin to build those bridges. You know, part of what ends up occurring, I think, in our society is that the people who are speaking with each other continue to speak with each other. You know, so if you say, well, let's let's have a roundtable discussion on diversity. The folks that show up for the roundtable discussion on adversity are the people that have already been talking about diversity and not necessarily the people who are resistant to recognizing some of the inherent uh, issues that are out there. I think we're looking to our equity commission, I think, to provide some direction for us. One of the things that we did here in our, in our listening tour was there were simple things we have not done 
as a city, which could support people to feel more welcomed. Like what? Well, celebrating the Day of the Dead, the Dia de los Muertos, having a community-wide celebration that recognizes the Hispanic population that's here and doing it in a, in a way that includes the community to celebrate that culture and what they've brought to us. What you end up doing is bringing visibility to the culture yeah. and community members. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, we just did a proclamation for Black History Month. We're teaming um, with the local historical museum who's done incredible research on local African-Americans who contributed to this community literally since the community's founding, but are fundamentally and functionally unknown. So we're sharing those links as the Historical Society pushes that out under our proclamation. And for the month, we're pushing out more information about the contribution that people who are black have made to this community. Um, we envision similar kinds of steps that the city can take to hopefully increase visibility of the, of the different communities that exist within Ellensburg, but also at the same time um, creating an ongoing commitment to ensuring that those voices are heard and recognized. Would you consider doing a listening tour with those who are more of the dominant culture who are now feeling left behind? We're looking at ways that we can reach out to those folks. How do we engage people in ways that are meaningful? And again, I, I don't know that we have sort of a magic wand for how to do that. As a city, a couple of years ago, we did a series of what we called neighborhood cafes. We recognized that we needed to communicate with people differently than we had historically done. People could invite us into their homes. So, for instance, myself and another council member or two would go to an individual's or a family's home. They would invite friends or neighbors in, and we would just have a broad conversation on the issues that they saw affected them. And then would bring that back into our conversation with the city council and with the city staff. So at this point, we don't ha I, don't, I don't say that I have a strategy other than we recognize that we need to be able to have that conversation to bring folks along. Mayor Tabs, thank you so much for your time, and we'll be in touch. Oh, no, thanks. It's a pleasure. Ellensburg Mayor Bruce Tabb in conversation with Sue Ann Ramella. That's all for this episode of Rebuilding Democracy. Thanks to Dr. Jennifer Sherman, Sue Lonnie Madsen, Ginny Darrell, and Mayor Tabb. And thank you for listening. Thank you to Northwest Public Broadcasting for this episode of the Rebuilding Democracy series, a collaboration between Humanities Washington, KUOW, Spokane Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. Tune in again soon.